I'm sorry I can't be with you on person this morning uh, because we are um, shielding Lillian's mum who's living with us and she'll be 90 in a couple of months time and quite vulnerable and so we're being very careful about COVID so I'm sorry you have to put up with this uh, visual of me without me actually being there you're hearing a voice but seeing no man I want to speak about Matthew's Gospel this morning because in Matthew's Gospel we have a detailed and fairly lengthy account of a sermon that Jesus preached. Uh, we find it in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7 and of course it's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you turn to Luke chapter 6 you will find a very similar sermon which we call the Sermon on the Plain. And the debate has always been uh, are these two different sermons, different times and different places, or is this the same sermon and we have Matthew's account of it and Luke's account of it, which is slightly different? Um, and so we don't know whether this is a sermon that Jesus preached once or as some commentators suggest he preached many times. The question for us this morning is not whether Jesus preached it once or preached it often. The question for us is why do we rarely preach it at all? Because it may surprise you to know that we actually rarely preach the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we preach the first bit, the Beatitudes, and uh, most of us have preached series on the Beatitudes. Uh, and of course we preach the last bit in Matthew 7, that parable of the wise and foolish builders. The wise man built his house upon a rock. But the central bit, the core of this sermon, is rarely preached. Uh, and I, I wonder why about that. And I've come to the conclusion that perhaps, maybe, it may be, that there's not a lot of what we would call theology in here. We love preaching theology. We love the Book of Romans, for example, you know, wall-to-wall -wall theology. Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 13 years preaching the Book of Romans. You could grow old and die while he was preaching the Book of Romans. Uh, and we love theology. But there's not a lot of what we would call theology in here. There's nothing in here about original sin, about substitutionary atonement, uh, about the resurrection, about the priesthood of all believers. None of those big themes are dealt with in here. What this is, is that this is Jesus preaching a sermon about living a life that pleases God. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for a moment, and certainly Jesus isn't implying, that theology is not important. There are other portions of scripture where we find Jesus preaching strong theology. But the point that I, I think is being made in this sermon is that if our theology does not lead us to live a life that pleases God, then we're misusing our theology. Theology is important. It's our faith and our hope are built on that. Jesus, we're built on the fact that Jesus died for our sins. He rose for our justification, uh, that salvation is by faith alone and so forth. But we need to be careful that theology doesn't become simply an academic exercise for us where we study theology and we understand it or we don't and we debate it but that at the end of the day it has little or no effect on how we live our lives. Living a life that pleases God should follow from our understanding and knowledge of theology. David said in Psalm 119, I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore, therefore, I hate every wrong path. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. And so Jesus is preaching to us this morning about how to live a life that pleases God. And he introduces it with two metaphors. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Jesus is looking you in the eye this morning and saying to you, you're the salt of the earth 
And that seems a nice thing to say, doesn't it? So-and-so's a, a great fella. He, he's the salt of the earth. Archie Thompson there, great fella, do anything for you. Salt of the earth. We use it as a compliment. But when Jesus is speaking here of you're the salt of the earth, uh, it's not a compliment. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to us. You ever watch MasterChef? Marcus Waring uh, has this plate of food presented to him that this chef has spent a lot of sweat and time and labour over uh, and he tastes it and immediately he says, ah, this needs salt. And the guys are at the competition. Salt's a flavour enhancer. It makes things taste better. That's why we have a salt cellar on the table. And the question this morning for us, first of all, is what does your presence bring to the table? By, by your talk and by your actions, are you enhancing the lives of others? Uh, are you doing good the way salt does good when you add it to your fish and chips? Does the love and the grace of God flavour your conversation and your relationships with people? Because if you're not doing that, if we're not doing that, then we are not displaying the heart and the character of God. And if our life is no longer glorifying God, then the question is, what's your purpose as a Christian? And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not a compliment. It's a challenge. That's what he means in verse 13 when he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, I have heard and read preachers spend a lot of time and energy and ink trying to explain how salt can, by some natural process, lose its saltiness. I've heard some weird and wonderful speculations, all of which, dare I say, I take with a pinch of salt. You knew there had to be a bad joke coming somewhere. So we take them with a pinch of salt. Chemists tell us that sodium chloride is a very stable compound with an indefinite shelf life. So let's not waste our time by trying to answer what is in practice a hypothetical question. Jesus is in effect saying, if hypothetically salt could lose its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And the question is also rhetorical. It can't. That's the answer. It can't. What Jesus is asking us is, if you have a big tin of salt in your kitchen cupboard, and you discover that one day that no matter how much of it you sprinkle on your fish and chips, and no matter how much of it you put in the water when you boil your potatoes, they still come out bland and needing salt, so that in effect all you have here is not really a tin of salt, but a tin of white powder. Why are you keeping it? It no longer serves any useful purpose. Throw it out. It's amazing the things that come to your mind when you're preparing a sermon. And I was thinking about many years ago in an earlier job, um, uh, where I worked, there were senior officers who, who didn't eat with the rest of us plebs, you know. Uh, they, they weren't getting their dinner on a tray through a hatch. They had their own dining room uh, with uh, silver cutlery and a big oak table and all of that. And uh, they were served by a waiter or a waitress. And um, what would happen was that on night shift, periodically, we would sneak into their dining room, which was always unlocked. And um, we would take their vinegar bottle and we'd empty the vinegar down the sink and we'd fill it with tap water because it pleased our simple minds to think of these guys sprinkling tap water in their fish and chips until all of that ran out and they filled it with vinegar again. The amazing thing was that they seemed to be able to do that 
and not realise that it had happened. They, they didn't see the difference. They hadn't realised that their vinegar had lost its vinegariness, its piquancy. And it's easy for us to lose our saltiness and not realise it. Sodium chloride can't lose its distinctive flavour, but we can very easily. You're probably aware that every time you switch on your television, there's an agenda being pushed at you, isn't there? There's a lifestyle agenda. The whole thinking is that if you and your boyfriend haven't slept together by the fourth date, then there's something wrong with your relationship. The only time you hear bad language in our house is coming from the television. And it's becoming normalised, isn't it? Our language and our attitudes and our view of the world can be so easily become influenced by what we see in TV and what we encounter in social media. And that godly perspective, that godly view of the world, that saltiness that we ought to possess and be able to bring to the table is so easily washed out of us that before we realise that our salt has lost its saltiness, we've just become the same as everyone else. Our views and our ambitions and our attitudes are the same. But the good news is that unlike table salt, which... Uh, can't be made salty again. There is repentance and forgiveness and we can become again the person that we were called to be, the person that you and I were saved to be. And then Jesus uses another metaphor which is linked to the first one. Having said you are the salt of the earth, he goes on to say you are the light of the world. It's another challenge. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Notice that Jesus says two things to us here about the light of the world. The first is that we are to be lights in the darkness. Put it on its stand, let it give light to everyone in the house. And then, of course, he goes on to say, let your light shine before others. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But you notice that before he says any of that, he says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. I remember driving through the hills in Yemen many years ago and looking across the, the valleys and seeing these little Yemeni villages perched on the hilltops. They're built on a hill because they're safer and easier to defend. But at night I could see all these beautiful little villages all lit up. They could be seen for miles and miles. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And one of the interesting things about a lamp or a torch or a candle is that although we use it to bring light to others, it is itself illuminated. If I strike a, a, a match in a dark room, uh, no matter how big the room, no matter how dark the room, immediately I strike it, you will see the match. Even if it takes your eyes a little while to adjust to see what's being illuminated by the match, you will immediately see the match. So if you and I truly are lights in the darkness, we will be seen. Even if you don't know how it happens or you, you've never actually been overt about it, people recognise it in you. I, uh, as many of you know, I have an allotment just around the corner there at Eden. And I was uh, walking up one morning and there was a guy on his hands and knees digging out weeds. And I said, these weeds are a problem, aren't they? They never stop. He says, it's your mate's fault. I said, what? He says, your mate's fault. I says, who's my mate? He said, that boy, Adam, Garden of Eden. He hadn't eaten the apple. I wouldn't be digging all these weeds up. You know, I said, listen, hang on, Adam's no mate of mine, you know. <laughs> 
so we can we can bring the light of God to others uh, even without realizing that we're doing it but we have to be displaying it ourselves don't we so Jesus says don't hide your light under a bowl ever do that ever hide your light under a bowl I think most of us have on occasion though I have um, you're maybe in a conversation and it starts to turn a bit unsavory, a bit bigoted or racist or becomes grumbling or spiteful and you feel you should say something but you, you bite your lip. I'm sure you've done that, have you? Many years ago when I worked with FIBA, we had a young people's activity holiday every year which was a great success. The same kids came year after year but it, it, we always had to subsidise it as a mission uh, to make it affordable. Uh, and eventually, just when times were tight, the home director decided we couldn't afford to subsidise this anymore. And so we had to break the news uh, to the children at one stage. Uh, we can't do this mission any longer, uh, th this holiday any longer. Um, we, we have to, this will be the last year. And they were disappointed and some of them were angry and whatnot. And uh, as part of the holiday, we were a radio mission. They were making radio programmes, learning to make radio programmes. And so one of them had the idea... Let's, let's phone this guy up, this home director up, uh, and we'll record him. Uh, and we put a lot of tough questions to him, put him on the hot seat and see what he has to say for himself. And there was a lot of support for that, you know. And we had engineers with us who could get a decent recording of a telephone or what have you. And so we're all set up and ready to do it. When suddenly somebody spoke up and said, listen, I don't think this is right. I don't think we should be doing this. This man has thought about this. He's prayed about this. Uh, he understands that he'd love to do it, but the mission simply can't afford it. And I think it would be uh, wrong of us to phone him up and try and put him in a hot seat like that. Uh, I wish it had been me said that, but it wasn't. I was all for it. Uh, <laughs> but he did, and, and immediately, um, well, two or three people said, yeah, well, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe you're right. And we didn't do it. And that was simply a, a, an example of someone letting his light shine and by so doing, he, uh, he kept us all on the right path. Um, so uh, we're put here to be the light of the world, as Jesus says. So let's fulfill our purpose. And he says in the same way, let your light shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's glorify God by doing good. That's what Jesus is saying here. You know, as I get older, I, I begin to understand more clearly what being a Christian is about. It is about glorifying God by doing good in the world. Glorifying God by being salt and light in a world that is dark and corrupt and that has lost its way. Glorifying God by making life that little bit easier for people who are struggling. Glorifying God by bringing the life-enhancing part of the gospel into hopeless situations. Glorifying God by bringing gospel light and gospel warmth into lives that are dark and cold. So says Jesus, in the same way, switch on the big light in the ceiling and let it light up the whole room so that everyone can see it. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And then Jesus very firmly squashes an idea that had gained some traction. Remember at the beginning I said there was very little of what we might call theology in this sermon, but here's a bit coming up. There was a lot of talk going about that Jesus was some new, cool, radical rabbi who had thrown out the rule book and is teaching that you can do your thing, do whatever you want. So here's what he says. 
do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus couldn't be clearer about his commitment to the scriptures. And I think we all understand what Jesus meant when he talked about fulfilling the law. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, for example. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that a requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus is the fulfilment of the law in a very clear scriptural sense. He fulfilled the law by both his words and his actions. His atoning death was the fulfilment of the law regarding sacrifices. The law was a shadow of his coming. But let's consider for a moment another way in which Jesus fulfilled the law. There is, I think, in London a very good uh, and therefore very expensive lawyer who specialises in defending those charged with motoring offences. Um, let's say a speeding offence. Uh, and one of the ways he does that is by studying the, the law in, in relation to that very carefully. Uh, and and, and uh, finding any loophole, any little thing that he can that would get you off the charge. So let's imagine for a moment you've, you've been charged with uh, doing 57 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone, past a school getting out and you get stopped by the police. Uh, and do you feel it's worth your while coming to this lawyer because you don't want to lose your license? And, and he takes you through it step by step. What happened, what the police said, what you said. He goes and visits the road and checks the 30 mile an hour signs and where how visible they are and all of that stuff. And when it comes to court, he manages to put up a good enough case and find enough little loopholes and little slip ups and a few boxes on ticked that get you off. And so you get away with it. You walk out. You're not guilty. So here's the question. Are you guilty or are you not guilty? Well, the law says you're not. There's no fine. There's no endorsement. There's no points in your license, nothing on your record. It's as if it never happened. You're not guilty, according to the law. But of course you're guilty. And you know you are. You're doing 57 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone past a school getting out. You know you're guilty. But you managed to find a technical loophole that got you off. And often in life, it's easier, easier to adhere to the, the letter of the law than to comply with the spirit of it. And so Jesus begins to teach us about what really fulfilling the law means. And he gives us three examples right away. Murder, adultery and divorce. The law said you mustn't murder anyone. But you can be as angry with them as you like and you haven't sinned, was the thinking. Jesus says, no, you'll be judged for your anger. The law says you mustn't commit adultery, but as long as you don't engage in the actual physical act, you're okay. Jesus says, no, if you're lusting after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in her heart, in your heart. Uh, that's something for us to consider because there's a multi-trillion pound porn industry out there. And if you're into watching porn, you're committing adultery. Uh, and thirdly, the law said that provided you met the legal requirement to give your, life a bill of, your, your wife a bill of divorce, Provided you did that, well, you're in the clear, you can divorce her. Jesus says here, no, no, you can't. The bill of divorcement isn't a carte blanche to get rid of a wife that you've just grown tired of. There has to be a serious betrayal of the marriage. 
Now, if you notice, all those examples are to do with interpersonal relationships. You see, living a life that pleases God is not all about simply going to church and reading our Bibles and praying, and that's important. But Christian living cannot be compartmentalized, no matter how much we might like it to be. Living a Christian life means living a Christian life in every area, including our relationships with other people. And that ought not to be startling news, because we have Matthew's record of Jesus' confrontation with a leading Pharisee in chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel. And here's what it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. So I'm not asking you what your relationship with God is like this morning. What I'm asking you is what's your relationship like with your neighbours, with your family, with your friends, your colleagues in work, and the people who maybe do work for you. What's your relationship like with them? For I tell you, says Jesus, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's some statement, isn't it? Jesus is pointing out the most religious and the most pious people in Jewish society. And he's telling his listeners, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're never going to enter the kingdom. You see, we can't enter the kingdom by doing our best or by being our best. Our best is hopelessly inadequate. The only currency that God accepts is the blood of his son. And at every Lord's table, we recognize that great sacrifice and give thanks. So good morning. Stay safe. God bless you.